Let me talk for a moment about something that breaks my heart. It really should break all of our hearts. People are leaving the church. Sometimes that happens in a really intentional and dramatic way. Folks storm out in rage and protest because of something awful that happened. And by the way, in many cases, that rage and protest can be entirely fitting. I get that. I've talked to people who've had that. Perhaps more often, however, leaving a church is a comparatively subtle affair. It's a softer attrition. Uh, To be sure, COVID played a part in this. People stopped coming to church for a while because they could not come to church, and then they didn't come back to church. Yet COVID cannot carry all the blame. Another issue, and this is for special consideration today, is the fact that new and novel and sometimes cruel and divisive and dangerous and toxic teachings or opinions get woven right into the fabric of Christianity. They get elevated to the status of doctrine. This is what you have to do if you're a true Christian. This is how you have to worship if you're a true Christian. This is what you have to believe. It can even become theological. This is what God says, even if that's not quite true. Let me put it this way. Non-essentials become essentials. Non-fundamentals become fundamentals. And then, if you find yourself questioning or second-guessing some non-essential, all of a sudden you can be considered a fake Christian. You can become suspect. You can even be considered a non-believer. You can be considered out rather than in, even though what you're considered out over might not really be an essential of the Christian faith. At this point, a quick interjection. How do you know what the true essentials are? The answer is that you look to Scripture. You've got to know what the Bible actually says so that you can then hold up whatever issues are at play to the things that Jesus taught, to the, the life that He modeled, and to the things that He prioritized. And then it becomes more clear what's truly fundamental uh, about being one of his followers. Then it becomes more apparent what the human add-ons are. You can see them for what they are. Speaking of add-ons, this is actually not a new thing. To the contrary, it's a long-standing tendency. It's an ancient tendency. Every generation has been tempted to make non-essentials into essentials, to conflate and confuse human traditions and human preferences with the basics of the gospel. And that can be really problematic. In some cases, those add-ons can invite attitudes and postures that are not merely unchristlike, but that are in fact even anti-Christ-like. About 15 years ago when I was in seminary, I will never forget this, I was on ministry placement in a church in the South Hall section of London. It's one of the many kind of boroughs or neighborhoods that makes up the city of London. And the nickname for South Hall is Little India. Uh, it actually has the second largest Sikh population in the world uh, outside of uh, the Sikh homeland. And it has the second largest Sikh temple in the world, which is called Sri Guru Singh Sabha. I think I did pretty good on that pronunciation. I practiced it several times last night. So anyway, I'm interning in this little parish church in South Hall in the midst of Little India for several weeks, and one Sunday morning in comes a Sikh man who wanted to join us for Holy Communion worship. And like all Sikhs, he's wearing a turban. All Sikhs wear a turban. And when the greeters saw this gentleman come in, what do you think they said to him? They said, off with that turban. This is not how we do things in here. This is a Christian place of worship. That's what they said to him. What was that? 
That was an example of making a non-essential into an essential, of mistaking a preference with a fundamental. And the result was that a guy who had risked a great deal to venture into a Christian church, he would have been seen as culturally disloyal for doing that. A guy who was genuinely curious about Jesus was driven away, perhaps never to return. That happened. This confusion of essentials with non-essential, this thing, tendency to add things onto the gospel, happens all the time in all sorts of ways. And the good news is that people can sometimes recognize this. You can recognize this, at least if you know the Bible. A lot of folks who have stepped back from church have recognized this. According to a book I'm reading right now, that's why they left. That's why a lot of people have left. Uh, Yet here's the really, really sad thing. Sometimes when people leave a church, they leave Jesus too. They leave because they see there's a problem with the bathwater, but in trying to deal with that problem, they end up throwing, throwing out the baby too, baby Jesus. And that is why it is so, so important to revisit the ABCs of the gospel from time to time every year, to be freshly reminded of what it is that we really need to hang on to before and after all else, the gospel fundamentals. And so now we arrive at the big moment. What do we need to hang on to? And the answer is that we need to hang on to the baby, to baby Jesus. And now let's close in prayer. (laughs) I'm just teasing. I've got a little bit more to say. (laughs) Actually, I want to say a little bit more. To be more accurate, I want to let St. Paul say a little bit more today. So we're going to look at Galatians 1, which Mike just read for us. And there are two things I want to spotlight quickly as we walk through this very important passage in the New Testament. First, there's the problem, and then there's the solution. The problem is solution. Let's start with the problem. What Paul writes in this chapter, and it's a little bit uh, perplexing, a little bit enigmatic if you haven't read the whole of Galatians, but what he writes here uh, is occasioned by a tricky and downright exasperating situation that happened in the church in ancient Galatia. Galatia was a region of the Roman Empire. It's in modern-day Turkey. And about a year before Paul wrote the letter to Galatians, which we know as the book of Galatians in the New Testament, he was over there in Galatia planting a church. That happened probably 10 or 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, so maybe in the 40s A.D., for those of you who like to put things on the timeline. After getting this church established, Paul moved on because there were other churches that he needed to plant. And that's when the trouble started, after he moved on. Here's what happened. Let me give you the rundown. A group of Jewish Christians, by which I mean followers of Jesus the Messiah who were ethnically and culturally Jewish, arrived in Galatia. And they found the church that Paul planted, and they visited that church, and they got familiar with what it believed, and then they chimed in. And when they chimed in, here's the gist of what they said. They said, when Paul preached to you and taught you what he said was right, if you want to be saved, if you want to stand in God's favor and love, you absolutely need to trust and love Jesus. you got to do that. But, but... There are also some others, there's also some other stuff you need to be doing, doing too, and it's also essential. What was that other stuff? What did Paul forget to write? Well, according to the visitors, he forgot about some of the religious traditions and customs of the Jews, uh, and three of these were especially important. One of them was keeping the Jewish dietary laws, so no shrimp, no bacon. Everybody around here would get real hungry real fast if we had to do that. Uh, no 
Uh, you had to keep the Sabbath in the Jewish way, which was to say in a very rigid manner, Sabbath observance. And then the last one, and this is for guys only, you had to be circumcised according to Jewish practice. So those were the three biggies. And so in some, these Jewish Christians who came over to Galatia after Paul told the new Christians in that church who were not ethnically Jewish, they said, yes, 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 what Paul told you about Jesus is spot on, but there is more to the gospel. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be properly Christian, you got to adopt these Jewish practices and customs. Otherwise, you're not really in God's good graces. Trust us. This is what Christianity is really about. That's what they were saying. So that's the situation to which Paul is responding. And he could hardly have been more emphatic and stringent in what he writes to the church in Galatia. He is beside himself. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one. And then he goes on to write these piercing words. Even if we hear an angel from heaven preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let that angel be accursed. Verse 8, that's pretty strong language. And if you read on in Galatians, there's even stronger language. But I'll let you discover that later on at home this afternoon. The central thrust of Paul's diagnosis of the problem is that some non-essentials have been made into essentials. And the result, verse 7, is that the gospel is being distorted. And guess what? That still happens. We, too, can distort the gospel by making non-essentials into essentials. Now, what might these distortions look like? Let me give you some examples in our own modern-day time. Uh, It can look like what happened in that church in South Hall, London. Uh, when that Sikh man came into worship wearing his turban and got rebuffed because he wouldn't take it off. So he left thinking that wearing a turban was essential to being a Christian. That's the impression that he took away that day. Uh, This distortion can also happen when you start thinking that to be a true follower of Jesus, to be really be saved, you got to worship in a certain way. Uh, For instance, you start thinking that if worship isn't done by the prayer book, then somehow it's subpar or illegitimate. Historically, Anglicans, Episcopalians have had a tendency to think like that, but so do all the other denominations. Uh, Here's what it sounds like. You worship God in your way, and we'll worship God in His way. That's the voice of the inner snob, okay? Now, to be clear, there is nothing wrong with the prayer book. It is beautiful, and at its best, it has tremendous formative power. That's one reason I'm an Anglican priest. But worship by the prayer book is not an essential of the gospel. It is a tradition. It's a preference. So don't get confused about that in your mind. Another way this distortion happens, I'm going to tread carefully here, but i got to say this. Uh, this has been a real issue in America of late, and I expect it's going to be an issue again here not too long, is that when we start uh, thinking and teaching that you have to vote a certain way or be a member of a political, particular political party if you're a true child of God, Now, at this point, I should say that that tendency actually cuts across party lines. I have friends in Virginia and Texas who think it is unconscionable for Christians to vote anything except for the elephant. But you know what? I got really good friends in Washington State and New York who think it is unconscionable for a sincere Christian to vote anything, vote for anybody except for a donkey. They both think that way. In both cases, what these people believe and say is dangerously similar to the troublemakers that Galatia and what they thought. If you're really in God's good graces, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you'll definitely be red. You'll definitely be blue. You've got to do that too, one or the other. No, you don't. No, you don't. Do not indulge that kind of skullduggery. I came across that word a few days ago. Isn't that a fun word? Do not indulge that kind of skullduggery. That is not a gospel fundamental. 
Your voting matters. Be thoughtful, be informed, be intentional. But voting in a certain way is not a gospel fundamental. That's the point. Let me give you one more quick example. Uh, Sometimes Christians have taught or insisted that those who are truly saved will never touch tobacco or beer or whiskey. They will not play cards. They will not have sex because it might lead to dancing. Heaven forbid. That's my Southern Baptist friend. My mother-in-law was kind of raised that way. In fact, with It's so deeply ingrained in her that she still struggles to play cards, though we did get her to play Uno over Christmas. Thank goodness. Her father had a gambling problem, and so he had a total prohibition over any card playing. And that was probably a good thing for him, but that's not a gospel fundamental. That's kind of what he made it into. Blackjack does not automatically separate you from God's love, but it can, and for some people it might. Distortions of the essential gospel abound. They were around during St. Paul's time. They're still around. They're always problematic. And what's at the heart of the problem? It's humans adding things to the gospel, confusing preferences, traditions, customs, sensibilities with the simple, though not simplistic, gospel of Jesus. And so now to circle back to where I started, I want to tell you about one of the worst things that can result from this tendency. Let me put it like this. It can lead us to break the law of Christ, which you heard from our gospel reading this morning. Paul writes about that in Galatians 6. It's also there in John's gospel. The law of Christ is a command from Jesus that sums up and supersedes all the rest. It's the final command to his disciples shortly before he's crucified. And he says, if you're going to follow me, guys, you've got to love other people as I have loved you. You have to even love your enemies, which is what I do. If someone considers you an enemy, you do not have to return the favor. In fact, if you're going to follow me, You don't return the favor. That's the law of Christ. Now, here's how those dots connect. When we, when our churches make non-essentials into essentials, we can end up adopting an attitude, a tone, and a posture that is anything but Christ-like. We can get nitpicky. We can have petty quarrels that get really intense and acrimonious, and it's it's often about stuff from the realm of preference. We make preference into an essential. And then when people don't agree or adhere, we get irritated, we get mean. So that's the problem. It's an old problem. It's right there in Galatia. If you're a true Christian, you can't eat bacon, you can't have shrimp. you got to be circumcised. Oh, yeah, and on the Sabbath, you can't even throw a toothpick into the fire. You can't even write or draw anything because those were the Sabbath regulations at that time. That's two of them. Old problems still around, just in new form. So let's think now about the solution. What does Paul offer as a remedy to this old problem? I want to look at verse 3 and 4. I think this is printed in the bulletin, so if you want to look while I read. I know some people learn better by reading rather than hearing. Paul says, grace to you, grace to you, and peace from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What's significant here is that Paul doesn't just say peace to you. A lot of people wrote letters that said peace to you. Paul says grace to you. Like some of you, when I was coming along in my younger years, I thought I knew about the Christian faith, yet in so many ways I was misinformed. I grew up going to a church. I was part of a fellowship of Christian athletes in middle school, so I thought I knew about Christianity. And while I did know something, there was a lot that I did not know. Let me put it like this. In my mind, Christianity was essentially a religion. It was about doing religious things in a religious place with religious people, maybe one day of the week. That's kind of what what it was about. And beyond this, and maybe some of you can relate, I also 
thought that Christianity was essentially about rules for life, about giving you moral uh, guidelines and principles. Uh, And so I remember as a teenager thinking that Christianity was totally unrealistic, certainly for a sinful teenager as myself, not to mention many adults. So that was Christianity for me. It was a religion, and for that reason, it was not super-duper attractive. But then I was challenged, and this happened because of the friend several close friends. I was challenged to look back at the source documents, to look carefully at what the Bible actually says, at what Jesus actually says. That's the search that every Christian is going to have to make at some point or another. And as I began to read the Bible and I sat under some biblical preaching, I learned that Christianity, I learned that the gospel is so, so different from what I thought. Let me put it like this. Christianity, verse 4 of today's text, is a rescue, not a religion. Christ gave himself for me, for my sins, to deliver me from this evil age. Now, you may find religion uninteresting and irrelevant, but you don't think a rescue is irrelevant. Suppose you're sleeping in the middle of the night, and there's a loud knock at the door, and you open the door, and there's a paramedic or there's a fireman. And in that situation, you don't say, oh, you're irrelevant to me, and close the door in their face. That's not what you do. No, you check things out. Why is this person here? Are they relevant? Is there a problem with me I haven't realized? My heart stopped beating or is about to stop beating? There are flames in a room upstairs because a rescuer has come. That's what Paul's saying. The answer to that question is yes. There is a rescuer who has come because I need to be rescued. And now we're getting right to the heart of the gospel. And what is the heart of the gospel? Verse 3, verse 6, five-letter word, grace. Grace. And what does this grace mean? It means that we're all in trouble. And that there's a Father in heaven who sends his Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. Because we all find ourselves in an evil age. Verse 4, that's Paul's stark language. There's evil around us. We see it all the time. The horrors of terrorism, constant insecurity in the world, greed, untold greed, wars and rumors of wars. There's evil all around us. It's pervading. But there's also evil within us. This is the part we don't always like to hear, but I'm preaching to you from the Bible, so I'm going to say it. And that evil within us is the root cause of all the evil that pervades the world around us. You see, it stems from the fact that all people at some deep level, people like me and you, not just Hitler and Stalin, but people like me and you, all of us have a tendency to turn away from God and to think the world would be much better if it revolved around us. And so we push God out. That's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. This is a disease that we all have, even though the symptoms manifest very differently in different lives. For one person, the symptom may be that you're a rapist or you end up murdering people. For others, it could be an addiction to pornography or vindictiveness or avarice. For still others, the symptom could just be the quiet callousness of pretending to be asleep on the airplane so that you don't have to stand back up and help that little old lady get her suitcase into the overhead compartment. Years ago, there was a strike of garbage collectors in New York City, and the trash started piling up. And there was this guy who had a great idea. Every week, he would pack all of his rubbish into a Macy's department store box, beautiful boxes. And he would put that box on the sidewalk outside of his door. And every week, a passing-by thief would stop and see that box and think, wow, it's a Macy's box. And so he would take that box away, and every week, the guy's trash got picked up when nobody else's did. (laughs) We're all a bit like that Macy's box. Outwardly, we can brush up nicely. Just look at you. You dress up nice. You're polite and friendly. Sometimes you're even downright charming. You clean up nice. We all can. Yet inside, there are things we like to keep concealed. Inside, there's some trash. There are warped, ugly stuff, bitterness, envy, hypercritical spirit, rage. 
And because of that, according to the Bible, we are not fit to be in the presence of God. Because of our garbage, if I might draw on that metaphor once more, we deserve to be taken to the garbage. Yet Paul says that God came to rescue us, and that is the gospel. It's not religion, it is a rescue. And at the center of this rescue is a guy called Jesus Christ. He's the only person that never had any garbage. At the center of it is a guy called Jesus Christ hanging on a cross where all of us should have otherwise been. And that's what he did to deal with my garbage. Now I want you to know, sometimes people don't really get this right, he did that deliberately. It was not an accident. He did not lose control and end up on the cross. In World War I, there was a soldier who was really badly injured. The medic came to him and said, soldier, I'm afraid you have lost your arm. To which the soldier replied, no, sir, I didn't lose it. I gave it. That's what Jesus did with his life to rescue us. That is the definition of the gospel. That is what grace means according to the Bible. And what does that mean for you and for me? Let me illustrate it in this way. Two friends are traveling around Europe one summer, and one of the friends decided to learn two phrases in the European language for every country they were going to visit. The first phrase was this, can I have the bill, please? And the second phrase was this, my friend will pay the bill. (laughs) And the Christian is someone who can always say, my friend Jesus is paying the bill. That's what a Christian is. My friend Jesus is paying the bill. So what's essential? That's it. That's the basic gospel. That's what Paul is making abundantly clear. In fact, he's making it forcefully clear. Accursed be anyone who tries to teach you something different from this essential. Verse 8 and again in verse 9. Accursed be anyone who would try to elevate their preferences, their traditions, their sensibilities to the level of gospel fundamentals. That's the memo. Don't mess with God's gospel. And in that memo is an invitation for all of us to look in the mirror, to check ourselves, to check our attitudes, to adjust our mindset. The church needs to do that from time to time because we are always at risk of confusing non-essentials with essentials. It was an ancient temptation. It's a modern temptation. So I want to leave you with one way to guard against this temptation. I call it gospel arithmetic. We all got to learn how to do it. Let's do some gospel arithmetic. You didn't expect math this morning, did you? Gospel, in gospel arithmetic, to add is to subtract. In gospel arithmetic, one plus one equals zero. It equals naught. It equals nothing. Let me put it like this. If you add something to the gospel, you take away from it until there's nothing left. That's what happened in Galatia all those centuries ago. People showed up saying, yes, you've got to trust in Jesus, you've got to love Jesus, but you also got to do this, that, or the other. Those people were reversing the gospel. They were turning Christianity into a religion rather than a rescue. By adding to the gospel, they were subtracting from it. And what does Paul say? He says, how dare you? How could you? Because when you do that, whether you realize it or not, you are the ultimate killjoy. Because when you do that, you make it impossible to sing from the heart one of the greatest hymns Christians have ever written. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine, found. I once was blind, but now I see. Amen.